Um, we are, through this Advent season, talking about um, hope and peace and joy and love, and we started out a few weeks ago talking about hope and how Jesus coming means that we can have hope. Uh, last week, we talked about how Jesus coming means we can have peace with God, and uh, if you haven't picked up on it yet, today we're talking about joy and specifically how Jesus coming means unimaginable joy. I'm not sure if this is, oh, there, okay. Jesus coming means unimaginable joy. Um, after our third son, Thacker, uh, was born, uh, my wife and I decided that uh, a family of five was big enough, uh, that we had three boys, and it worked out nicely, and it was uh, just as we had planned, and we thought, this is good, we will be done now with having children. Uh, and of course, everything always goes to plan. Um, you may have seen, no, it doesn't, but, um, which is why there was some strange confusing, confusion and even fear when one morning in the summer of 2020, my wife woke me up in the most uh, alarming way imaginable uh, by hurling a uh, pregnancy test at me. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and it was, it was, uh, it was strange because it was like, wow, well, we didn't plan for this and we didn't ask for this and we don't think we had wanted this and uh, okay, but we had decided early on in our marriage, we said that will never be bad news. That will never be bad news. And so even as we're going, okay, we got to, uh, we got to maybe get back a bunch of stuff that we donated or gave to others so smugly, like we're done with this, ha ha ha, you know. Oh, we got to make plans. We got to start thinking about this. We got to tell parents. We got to, you know. And then my wife had a miscarriage. And it, it was the weirdest, strangest whiplash that we felt. Because here we, we had not planned for, nor had we asked God for this baby. And then we weren't going to have this baby. And there was this strange grief and sorrow that we felt and the confusion that we had and and we just kind of spent this time reeling um and it was really really hard for us even our kids noticed like there's something just really in a funk um, with mom and dad and victoria even said at one point you know two months ago i thought our family was complete and now it feels like it's not it feels like someone is missing. And it was a really strange and hard kind of mixture of emotions for us to feel. And before we even really had much time to process or think much about it, boom, another positive pregnancy test. <laughs> and yet, somehow in that, there was this incredible grace and compassion and joy that God gave to us in that time. And I uh, obviously don't have a favorite son. But if I did, it'd be Dewey. Man, that kid is amazing. You know, our, our fourth son brings us so much joy. And we tell him all the time, oh, God knew that we needed you, Dewey. And, and he has brought an incredible joy to us. And I, I say this just to make this point 
that joy, joy is rarely an isolated emotion. In, in fact, I, I would argue most often, joy is accompanied by these competing and even sort of uh, antimonous emotions that we don't really know what to do with. But sometimes I think that it's because of these hard, grievous lows that it makes the joys so much higher, so much sweeter, so much greater. And I want to talk about that today as we talk about joy. I want to talk about joy in the Christmas story. And I want to look specifically at two chapters from the Christmas story. And uh, we don't have time to read everything, though I will commend it to you this week. Uh, But I want to look at Luke chapters 1 and 2. Specifically, I want to look at six different characters and six different perspectives in this Christmas story as it relates to joy and all of the other emotions that come with that. I'll have uh, verses up uh, to highlight, uh, but I'll be reading more, uh, and, it, and it will be helpful if you have a copy of Scripture uh, with you to have that open to Luke chapters 1 uh, and 2. And I want to look at Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna. And so just a, a sort of crash course Cliff's Notes for, uh, you know, looking over this, this set of chapters. We've got Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And before uh, Jesus is, is announced and his birth is foretold, um, we have a similar experience with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is one of the priests, he's a Levite, and he's on duty for going in and, and making the certain sacrifices at, at the altar within the holy place in the temple. And one day, an angel appears to him and says, hey, I know you guys are elderly, but you're going to have a child. And he and Elizabeth had waited for ages for this child. And the angel told them, and this is just, this is huge. This is going to be great. This is so joyful. This is this prophet that God said he was going to send to herald the way of the Messiah. To say, like, here is the signal that the Christ is coming. And your baby boy gets to be a part of that. And then Mary, who has this uh, visit from an angel where the angel Gabriel tells her something similar. Uh, you are, I know you're a virgin, but you are great with child and God has blessed you greatly. Favored among women, he says, that you are going to give birth to God's promised Messiah and he's going to be a savior for all the nations. And then after the baby is born, In the area where Mary and Joseph are, there are these shepherds who are minding their own business, and this is some of what you heard read from the the kids this morning, and suddenly an angel comes and says to them, hey, I've got the best news ever, and there's joy in this, and then suddenly a whole host, a whole army of angels fills heaven, heralding, saying glory to God in the highest. And then some weeks after his birth, Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus into the temple to present him, and there are these two old people in the temple who see the Christ child, recognize that this is God's promised Messiah, and rejoice. They have this sort of 
instinct, this response of joy that God has finally sent his promised Messiah and taking them up in his arms, uh, taking the, the, the baby up in his arms, ah, oh, this is so great, and rejoices and praises and blesses God. And in the midst of this, I have really just two observations that kind of runs as a theme throughout these six perspectives. And the first observation is this. Joy comes in the midst of fear, confusion, trouble, and waiting. Joy comes in the midst of fear, confusion, trouble, and waiting. You know, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth who have waited for some time, longing for children. In fact, if you um, look at uh, maybe starting in chapter, uh, uh, or chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and advanced in years. They're, they're waiting for uh, this, this child. They, they're longing to have a child, and they, they have this sense of anticipation, uh, maybe even years and years of disappointment for not having a child. And in the midst of that, that's the context in which God comes and tells them. But more than that, there is a running theme with all of these people when they're first given this information. Jump down uh, just a couple of verses. Uh, let's read in verse 11, uh, where Zechariah is in, the holy of, in, in this holy place and he's performing his priestly duties. And in uh, verse 11, he says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I don't know if it's quite working or if it's... I'll do this and we'll advance it if that works for you. Okay, great. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. And so Zechariah's response in seeing this angel is one of fear. And even, you know, to be suddenly visited at work and given this information, that's maybe even more so than if you're woken up with a pregnancy test and your wife says, get up, we have something to talk about. He's, his first response is one of fear. And we see this over and over, and in fact, he's, he's a little bit incredulous, too. And Zechariah's response to the angel is to ask this question, how can it be? In verse 18, he says, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I just want to stop for a moment, and just this is one little off-track observation, but as husbands, I think we read this very differently. I don't know if you, like, you can feel where Zechariah almost puts the pause in here. You know, I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Like, it's a very diplomatic way of doing, like, he half expects her to be with his, her ear at the veil. I know you're not about to call me an old woman. Advanced in years. That's what I said, dear. Anyway, he says, how, how, how can this be? There's this this weird fear and confusion and, and apprehension in the midst of the joy 
that this news really brings. Take a look at Mary's response when the angel comes and visits her. I want you to jump down to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There is this sense of, in the midst of some of the best, greatest, woohoo news ever, Mary is filled with fear. She doesn't know what's going on. She's confused. She's wondering what on earth is happening right now. She's even trying to discern what sort of greeting this is. An angel shows up out of nowhere and says, greeting you highly favored one. What the heck? You've got the wrong house, dude. But it's in the midst of this fear and confusion that God is announcing to this teenage girl the greatest news ever and the great joy that is accompanying it. Jump down into the next chapter as we read the account of the shepherds. I'll start in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. They're filled with fear. They don't know what's going on. They're just at work doing their jobs. Haven't heard from a prophet or a, a revelation from God for centuries. And yet they live under this sort of oppressive regime, this client state. And now out of nowhere, an army of heaven appears and gives them this news. They're terrified. And the angel has to say, don't be afraid. This is, trust me, great news. This is good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. And even I think of Simeon and Anna in the temple. And it, in fact, it says that they're known to everyone in the temple. You know, now, now there is this man who was always at the temple, who was always there waiting, fasting, and praying. And then we're told how long Anna has been there. She has been there for decades as a widow with this hope, this trust that she is, is going to see, jump down to verse 25, and we read this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's sitting here with this anticipation, this longing, this like, will it happen someday, I hope. Jump down to verse 37, Anna's perspective. And there is a widow until she was 84, and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, longing for decades for this thing that, that God had said she would live to see. 
this sense of anticipation and longing and waiting, and it is finally fulfilled. Because joy often comes to us like that. Joy comes to us in the midst of fear and confusion and trouble and waiting. And that's often when joy is felt in its most salient, wonderful, abundant way. Jesus coming means unimaginable joy. That is what makes this message just so amazing and so great and filled with joy. Over and over and over again, this is the response that we see. This is the, almost the commandment, you know, that maybe you're not feeling joyful, or you're afraid, and you're, you're uh, downhearted, you're waiting, longing for something, and in the midst of that, angels show up and say, be joyful, rejoice. And I hope that you don't feel that in this Christmas season. Like you are just not feeling it. And then you come to church and we're going, put a smile on, grouchy pants. Come on, be joyful. But instead, there is this sense of going, it is okay if you're in a hard spot. It's okay if you're feeling pain and trouble and confusion and distress and waiting and disappointment. Because that's when joy is its most salient. Chapter 1, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of God most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, Jesus, uh, his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just the most incredible, greatest news ever. Verse 41, this is uh, what happens when Mary and Elizabeth see each other. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt with joy. And even Mary's response at that point, this is something in, in, in church tradition that's called the Magnificat because of its Latin name, her first word. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. There is great unimaginable joy that comes even in the midst and maybe even because it is coming in the midst of fear and confusion and trouble and longing and waiting. The second observation, the second point that I want to make this, this morning is this. Joy is contagious. Joy is contagious. Even if we look at the, the main crux, the meat of this news that is brought first to the shepherds, in chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, look at what they say. 
Verses, uh, let's look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I want to break this down just a little bit. And this word that is used, good news, we, in our tradition, we use a word gospel that comes from uh, old German roots, and it just means good news. That's what that word means. The gospel is good news. The Greek word here is a word we've also imported into English. The Greek word is a, is a two-part word that is com comes together. This form is a verb, I bring you, but it comes from the, the root word euangelion. You meaning good, and angelion meaning messenger. Okay, That's where we get the word angel, a messenger. Okay? Some of you are thinking to yourself, I was here last week and he did biblical etymology and now we're getting it again this week. That's right, darn it, eat your vegetables. This is what you get. Your pastor's a nerd. Okay. But this word, euangelion, is where we get another modern word in English, evangelical. From this root, good, and angelion, messenger or news. That is what it means to be people of the gospel. That is what it means to be evangelical. In fact, the gospel isn't just good information, it's good news. It's meant to be shared, it's meant to be shouted and proclaimed and told, not just in what we say, but in what we value and in the way we act and in all of what we do. It's meant to communicate a message to the world, good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. And in fact, when each of these individuals hear this news, they just can't keep it to themselves. As we look at all of their responses, their responses are to share with people. Look what happens when Zechariah's shift ends. Verse 23 of chapter 1. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He rushed home. He couldn't speak. You can read about that this week. He was rendered dumb, and then there's, he was writing on a tablet, and there's some uh, comedy in, in that. But he, he is just like, I, I got to try at my best to explain to Elizabeth what the heck is going on. How about Mary? You know what Mary does as soon as she hears this news, and even your cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant? You guys should touch base and figure this out. Jump down to verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She ran to go and chat with Elizabeth. Can you believe this? I, I got to talk with somebody about this. How about when Elizabeth and Zechariah's baby is finally born? What's the response? What happens? What do, we, what do we know about what Elizabeth has been saying to everyone? Jump down to verse 58 of chapter 1. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The whole town knew, and her neighbors and her relatives heard all about it. You probably know someone like this. Did you hear about my grandson? Yes, we have heard. You've told us all about it. And yet, this is more than just, we got the Christmas letter, Lizzie. They rejoiced with her. 
This is amazing. This is incredible. When you hear good news and you go, I just got to tell everybody. My whole neighborhood, all of my relatives, they, they got to know about this. That was Elizabeth's reaction. That was her response. How about the shepherds? Jump into chapter 2. When they hear about this, they immediately say, let's, let's go and see. Let's go and check out this child that they've, they've told us about. And then in verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. I bet those shepherds were the talk of the town. I bet everybody was talking about, what on earth has gotten into these shepherds? They just can't stop talking about this baby that was born. They are lit up. They look like they've seen an army of angels. Yeah. They can't stop talking about what they've seen. And even Simeon and Anna, Simeon does not lower his voice at all in this instance in the, in, in the temple, and it talks about him saying out loud with this loud voice as the baby Jesus comes in, and he exclaims and picks up the baby again, don't do that, ask for permission, I got your back, Smiths, okay? But Simeon picks up the baby, and he just says, ah, everybody, can you believe it? I finally get to do it. And at the very end of this chapter, we see Anna's response. Jump down to verse 38. And coming up at that very, that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is news so great, you just can't sit on it. She couldn't keep it to herself. She was telling everybody she knew about this baby who was the Messiah, finally here to redeem our people. Jesus coming means unimaginable joy, and it's the kind of joy that you just gotta share. And in fact, this is not just a mark of Jesus coming and Jesus' ministry at his birth. We see this all throughout the Gospels. We see this all throughout the interactions that Jesus has with others. In the very first part of Mark, Jesus heals this leper, and the leper is leaping and shouting and telling everyone he knows about this man who showed up and healed him. Or in John chapter 3, when Jesus comes and he talks to this woman at the well and tells her about water, that if she drinks from that, she will never be thirsty ever again. And she tells the whole town, and it says, so many people from this town were turning out to hear more about Jesus because of her testimony, because she just couldn't stop telling everybody about this guy she met who knew all about her and told her exactly how we, are, we ought to worship. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, there are two separate accounts where Peter's mother-in-law gets healed and she, cannot, she can't stop telling everyone about her son's new job and, her, and, and his, his boss, uh, but uh, all about how she was healed and she's telling all the neighbors and all of her friends and all of her family members. And then we see two demon-possessed men who are, the demons are cast out, and the whole town knows about it because they just can't shut up about this guy, Jesus, that they met. That's what the gospel does. It fills us with this incomparable, unimaginable joy that just spills out, and we just got to tell somebody. 
That is the nature of the gospel. It is good news. There's one more aspect that I want to talk about, this idea of the gospel, of, of the euangelion, the good news of great joy. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 10, we see this. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I would even argue a really good translation might say, for all the peoples, because the word used describes people groups, ethnic groups, whole nations and tribes. This idea that even if God's salvation is not universal, it is certainly global in its extent. This is not just for Judah. This is not just for Israel. This is not just for the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is for everybody. To the ends of the earth, every tribe and nation and tongue. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And we see that reflected in the way that this message spreads even after Jesus goes up into heaven and the gospel spreads throughout the whole world in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because Jesus' coming means unimaginable joy. So we ask ourselves, as we do every week, so what? What does this have to do with us? There was good news of great joy to these six individuals and maybe a whole bunch of others that met and interacted with Jesus. Is this good news for us? How does this good news affect our lives here and now in 21st century Quebec? My first thought is this. Joy can still break through in the midst of fear, confusion, trouble, and waiting. In all that you might be going through, and especially there are many during Christmas time that feel this strange mix of emotions. Sorrow of family that you can't be near, or loved ones from whom you are estranged, or maybe dear friends or family that have died and this is a, a time when you really, really miss them and your heart aches. Maybe this is just so not the Christmas of your childhood. Maybe so much of the, the magic is worn off and it just felt like some facade or some veneer. In the midst of that, in the midst of whatever you're fearing, feeling, joy can and does break through. And it is okay if you have this strange tension of sometimes competing emotions. That's when joy does its best work. The second thought that I have is this. The joy of the gospel means that we should be proclaiming it. I believe at the very heart of following Jesus... It means that this is more than just good information. It is principally good news. And this word evangelical is one that has grown to have so, so much baggage. And I believe that and feel that and I, I grieve that. And even coming from the U.S., which has the highest percentage of and highest numeric number of people that, that claim to be evangelical... I fear that this is a word that is losing its meaning. 
it's taken on so many other kind of ideas and labels to the point that I, I feel often the need to kind of clarify and to say, well, no, 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 when I say evangelical, I don't mean this, and I don't mean that, and I don't mean I think this, or vote this way, or do that, or believe this, or, or deny the humanity of those, or whatever else. And that's hard for me, because I believe in this. I believe that the word evangelical is important, and it needs redeeming because we ought to be people of good news. We ought to be people that say, God has changed me so radically and so wonderfully. He has filled me with such unimaginable, abundant joy. There's no way I'm keeping it to myself. There's no way I can shut up about this. I've got to tell people. It's good news of great joy. And the gospel means we should be proclaiming it. I believe that in all that we do and teach. And related to that is this idea that if you preach a gospel that doesn't come across as good news, you're probably doing it wrong. I don't know if any of you have ever heard a preacher or a teacher or someone on the radio or a podcast or uh, you know, somebody who's clipped and we get sound bites of and they just they sound angry and harsh and judgmental. And I am not saying that there are not hard things that we need to teach. I am not saying there aren't warnings that are important in the heart of the teaching of Scripture. I'm not saying that there are cautions that God is instilling in us to warn. But principally, the gospel that we preach is good news. And banging people over the head with judgment and warning and fear of hell is not the picture that I see painted in Luke chapters 1 and 2. I see a sense of unbelievable, abundant, unimaginable joy. And when we proclaim our faith and when we share the gospel, we need to be asking ourselves, is this good news? Are people feeling the joy that this is, that this has changed my life? Next, I believe that we should have a strategy for proclaiming the good news to all people. I believe that if the gospel truly is good news of great joy that is to be for all peoples, we need to think strategically about the way we are proclaiming that message to all peoples. I think that being evangelical means more than just having a sort of cultural lens on our faith it means saying this is meant to be good news that goes to every corner of the earth to every nation tribe and tongue to the uttermost parts of the globe we ought to be sharing and proclaiming this good news that's why we sing these songs go tell it on the mountain over the hills everywhere shout it to everyone that you can i was um I was in Ethiopia a number of years ago, meeting with some, some mission partners that we have and, and visiting them, and um, their identities had to be kept somewhat sensitive because their ministry in uh, the context of the Orthodox Church. And what these missionaries did was they taught at an Orthodox seminary within the Coptic Church of Ethiopia, where they were instructing young uh, seminarians and pastors how to study 
hermeneutics and study and teach the Bible. And I got to meet with some of these people. In fact, the dean of this Orthodox seminary. And in so many ways, sometimes you, you meet people and, and um, they have leadership roles in, in national churches and organized churches and structure there. And there is a sense of going, well, yes, of course, this is my religion and you have yours and that's fine. But there was something in this man who would not use the moniker evangelical or Protestant. He would say, yes, I am Orthodox, I'm Ethiopian Orthodox and I'm proud to be. But in the way that he said, no, this gospel that we are studying, this truth from God's word that we are teaching and proclaiming, it can't stay in Ethiopia. We want it to start here and go all across the world. We want our missionaries from Ethiopia to go to the far reaches across the globe because this is too important a message to which I said, amen, absolutely. There is something about learning and hearing and seeing the good news of the gospel that make, makes you go, we got to go tell everybody. And we ought to be a church that does that, that prioritizes that, that says we want this to be a message that goes to all people. And I, I think I just want to end with, with an observation um, as I think about what Advent is and not just a looking back at this time when Jesus came, but Advent is, is also meant to redirect our perspective, to look towards a time when Jesus is coming again, to look towards a time when we will again get this great news that Jesus has come and it's changing everything. And this... There's a vision of this that's described at the very end of the Bible. John has this dream, this vision, where he sees this second coming. And right at the very end, the penultimate chapter of Scripture in Revelation 21, he describes it like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And this reunion that we have a hope to look forward to, this great time of unbelievable joy, it's described as a wedding. It's described as a wedding feast where a bride and groom see each other and just erupt with joy. And I got to tell you, I got to see this. I got to witness a picture of this yesterday, right here in this very spot. The wedding of, of Ola and Noelia and, and the joy that they had for each other. And even in Ola's vows, I didn't tell him I was doing this, I'm sorry. You set it up here so it's admissible, all right. But even Olaf, when he said in his vows, today my heart is dancing with joy for you, my bride, as he promised and pledged his love to her. Folks, that 
That is the emotion that we ought to have as we look towards a day when Jesus is coming back. And we ought to be filled with joy, not just because when he came the first time it was the best news ever, but as we look towards a day when he is coming again, it means unimaginable joy. Jesus coming means unbelievable, profound, unfathomable, unimaginable joy. God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done. We bless your name. We give you glory. We praise you for the work that you are doing in our lives. We pray that even in the midst of hard frustration or sorrow or longing or sadness, that you would show us joy, that you would point us towards joy, that our joy would be even sweeter and more glorious because of the sorrows that we feel. God, I pray that we would look towards a day when you are coming again as a bridegroom comes for his bride, that we would be filled with joy in the way that we proclaim that in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, in our community, and to everyone that we know that we would proclaim your great, amazing, gracious, compassionate love, and it would fill us with joy. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.